Hey guys, it's Lauren and I am just popping in at the beginning of the pod to say that I did a slight mess up in this episode and I multiple times referred to Philip Duke of Wharton as Francis Dashwood. I confused the two Hellfire Club uh, originators, shall we say, and merged them into one person. In my defence, old white men all kind of look and sound the same and are quite confusing. But I do apologise for the confusion and when I'm talking about the development of the first Hellfire Club, if I say Dashwood, I actually mean Wharton. Sorry about that and enjoy the pod. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Girl Guide Association. My name is Lauren. And I'm Mary. And we are the Girl Guides and this is our association. So how are you Mary going? I'm doing all right, yeah. Nice. Starting to get a little bit colder. So it's nice, you know, getting out of those blankets. I love it for us. Yeah. How how are you? I'm good. I am, as as you can see, if you're watching on YouTube, I'm embracing spooky season in my pinup ghost dress. Um, And I also went to Tiger this week and they have just got out their Halloween decorations. It's great. It's quality. There's a nice combination of creepy and Mm -hmm. very cute, which is, which is my aesthetic. That's what I like. I was good. And I only bought one spooky ghost. Um, love it love it well you know me I've I've been buying spooky things from TK Maxx for (laughs) at least two months now (laughs) yeah I did start in August um Mm -hmm. but now it's it's hitting the high street and I'm feeling it this year Mm. I think I feel like people are ready for Halloween this year and and me too I'm excited I'm excited for the Halloween to happen um but if you're in the UK or Europe highly recommend checking out Tiger they've got some cute shit this year um, and they always do cute like Halloween eyeballs with popping candy and things like that in, as well as Ooh. the decorations. So nice. that's always a plus point. We like some cute Halloween candy. Mm-hmm. But I stock up on and eat all year round. <laughs> <laughs> so this week's episode is my episode and I am going to be talking about something that I think, well, I know it has a very gothic history. But it's something that has, Mary doesn't know what it is, so I'm going to give you some clues. It's something that I think is going to be really big this Halloween, but not for the reason that it started. I think very intrigued. Yeah, I think this thing is going to be in a lot of people's Halloween costumes because it's recently been a part of a big pop culture moment, but almost like completely separated from its origins. Okay. I am talking about the Hellfire Club. Ah, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> love it, love it. And and you are 100% spot on. I've already started to see like Hellfire yep. um, jumpers and yep. sweatshirts and t-shirts and like just little things with like the Hellfire like logo, mm-hmm. logo on. And I guess for anyone who, who doesn't know why we're talking about a Hellfire Club, it's... <laughs> because of like where have you been and why have you not watched Stranger Things yet (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah like even if you do not watch Stranger Things I feel like it has been really difficult if you are at all on the internet to avoid the Eddie discourse um so Eddie was a very beloved character from this season Mm -hmm. of Stranger Things and has um a t-shirt on it um which I think in the show is like it's like their own design which says the Hellfire Club and that's like the nickname for their um like you know, their group, their D&D party. 
and you know it's got a skull on it it's very kind of like 80s metal links Mm -hmm. into the narrative um of like satanic panic and yeah we've we've seen so much strange things merch with the hellfire club i know for a fact that eddie is going to be a really popular Halloween costume this year and people have been really loving because the Hellfire Club the the way that the show presents it this idea of something that is against the grain that is like into the occult that likes you know Eddie likes Lord of the Rings he likes D&D he likes Metallica you know these are things that are becoming more mainstream mainstream sorry not screen (laughs) which is great because we love those things but, you know, historically has been associated with, as we talked about in Mary's Fantastic Metal episodes, things like the Satanic Panic, things mm-hmm. like, you know, Christian fundamentalism in the 80s, the rise of people like Reagan and Thatcher. But the Hellfire Club is, is so much older than that. And it's one of those things that I feel like when we say the Hellfire Club, it's such a huge part of the cultural zeitgeist that it's going to conjure an image to your mind. But what it actually is and how it actually started and where that name comes from, whilst it has had the same basic ideas over the decades, it's like three, four hundred years old. Um, I can't do maths. So 1700s. <laughs> it's now the 2020s. So centuries. Uh, so, yeah, I want to talk to you about the gothic history of the Hellfire Club. I'm very much into this. Let's, <laughs> let's just dive in. Take a quick sip of water. Okay, Mary, going. Do you know anything about the Hellfire Club? Slash, what do you think of when we say the Hellfire Club? So, obviously, like beyond Stranger Things and it being a D and D club, <laughs> I I actually don't know that much about it beyond the fact that when you say Hellfire, it makes me think of of Satan. Um, yes, and and Hell. <laughs> and fire <laughs> and fire funnily enough there are certain illusions that come to mind when you say hellfire club yeah. um and those are not wrong so the hellfire club when we say the hellfire club it comes from a group that originated in the 1710s but it's actually mostly associated to two separate somewhat disparate groups but both happened in the 18th century And they happen for a very specific set of reasons. So what I want to introduce to you is the restoration. So Mary, I know know that you know what the restoration is. Um, But for those of you that don't know what the restoration is, the restoration is a period towards the end of the 17th century um, when, and I think we kind of talked about this a little bit in my French Revolution episodes, when essentially Oliver Cromwell died, his son was not very good at the job. And also people were like, huh, we overthrew the monarchy. Why are we still having a hereditary leadership? And over in France and in Europe was the displaced Stuart monarchy. And they were like, hmm, maybe we should bring them back. So in the late 17th century, the Stuart monarchy was reinstated. And we call this the restoration I always feel really conflicted about this because like (laughs) culture and literature under like Cromwell and I guess a little bit the sun was very stifled the the arts were kind of limited and restricted Mm -hmm. and I guess you could say obviously people are going to make art 
it's not that these these things weren't happening. People were writing plays and poems and and songs and and stories. But the kind of it was all dampened down and it wasn't exactly. really celebrated. So for a, for a large part, the kind of restoration period, there's a lot of what I would say is quite dull and boring to some extent, especially on the surface. Yes. But on the other hand, we, for that brief period, we were a republic. Yeah. We had no monarchy. <laughs> this is the this is the this is the thing about the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth mm. was dull as fuck. Like the Commonwealth banned, and I mean, you know, the joke is always like Cromwell banned Christmas, and that is not strictly speaking true. But Cromwell was a Puritan, and he believed in a very very strict dour version of morality that didn't believe in the theatre. The theatre, it's funny because now the theatre is seen as being high class. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the theatre has always been that amazing meshing of high and low. But towards the end of the, like, you know, Elizabethan and to the beginning of the Stuart monarchy, it was licentious. It was, you know, promoting all of these radical ideas that weren't necessarily, you know, it often was doing things like challenging the monarchy. But it was also seen to be something that was challenging morality and that was bringing the people of Britain down. So the theatre was cancelled, certain types of, you know, you weren't allowed to do certain types of public performances and public art. And the Commonwealth was a very dull period in a lot of ways, even though, you know, Cromwell was a dick like look up his subjugation of Ireland um but he was a very strong leader we were a republic the problem is it wasn't sustainable and <laughs> I feel like even if you had been like anti-monarchy the absolute extremism when it came to like the version of morality and Christianity that was being enforced a lot of people were like this sucks and this isn't what we asked for so yeah Cromwell dies and with him dies his cult of personality and I Mm -hmm. would say that he in a way was a dictator like he overthrew a system he became its leader he did not introduce a system for what would happen when he died and we got a power vacuum which as I've said before is not great so everyone's like hey maybe we should reinstate the monarchy so they bring the Stuarts back and with them they bring back the exiled royalists and these are mostly young men and young women like Afro Ben, but a lot of young men who um, like John Wilmot, who famously wrote a play that just had loads of penises on the stage and, you know, the queen acted in it. These young men had grown up mostly in Europe being told that they had been displaced. So they had, most of them had some memories of growing up in England, but they had been either exiled or they had fleed, fled, sorry, fleed. That's what you do to a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Or they had fled after the civil war and the execution. And they had been raised in these European courts because a lot of their, you know, the Stuart royal family had French ties. So the, the French monarchy, the Asian regime was like, yeah, come and stay here. Like you're our cousins, essentially. And a lot of Europe, particularly France, saw this as, you know, this terrible crime. So they lived in Italy. They lived in France. And the 18th century in particular saw Europe as being this like lavish, excessive nation. And partially that's because of the manners and the morality that these young people were raised with. Um, And you see this a lot in like Afroban's work. So all of a sudden, all of these exiled royalists, these noblemen with the young king, they come back. 
And essentially, they are like, our actions have no consequences. Carpe motherfucking DM. You could say that all hell broke loose. Literally all hell broke loose. Yeah. Literally. And this is where like carpe DM, seize the day, comes from. Mm. This is the original YOLO. These young guys, I don't mean like, yeah, women are part of this too, but I'm about to be super critical. So um, I'm going to insert my gender bias. <laughs> these young dudes come over and they're like, we are rich. We have these noble ancient bloodlines and this huge revolution that happened, this war that happened, this change that happened has just been reversed like that. We have our power back. We can do whatever we want. So this tradition arises that we call the restoration rape also known sometimes as the libertine but the libertine is seen as being a bit more poetic the libertine's an artsy fuckboy um the rake is like lads on tour that's how I would I love I love that distinction yeah and 100 100 100 there yeah yeah Uh, yeah so so to, to kind of understand where the hellfire club comes from, you need to understand the restoration rate. And this is something that Queen Anne was like, oh no, like not having this and tried to like shut it down. But under Charles II, because um, <laughs> we're now on third. So yeah, Charles II. So the restoration king, he, you know, loved the theater. He had mistresses and was very open about it. And in some ways, one of the worst leaders slash monarchs we've ever had. But in other ways, you know, we would not have the culture that we have now. had it not And been I love that so- you say that, you know, we, we wouldn't have the culture that we have now, because I always think, you know, people who are critical and this happens in every generation, you know, mm-hmm. oh, look at look at the youth being so lewd with their with their penis jokes and their sex <laughs> jokes and you yeah. know all of this kind of stuff and I just think have you studied the restoration period because you can like throw a dart at any poem or any yeah. play and it will be littered with yeah. sexual innuendo and penis yeah. joke after penis joke after yeah. penis joke and like there you know is. if that's the culture that we have and mm-hmm. you know that we've inherited and that we've kind yeah. of you know cultivated okay yeah Yeah. and like poets like John Donne like Uh there you know there's there's to the flea which is basically I wish I was the flea that lives on you because I want to be like in your breasts the whole time and then there's the famous poem who I like the name is going out my head but basically the one that's like you're gonna die and be worms in the ground so you should have sex with me now because what's the point one of yeah one of my favorites is a play called the country wife which is is, you know if you think about you know city versus country Mm -hmm. that's what I'm talking about but if you're thinking huh that sounds like a pun you're right it is in the title yes and like there's so much of this you know so like Wilmot wrote this play where there was like these huge phalluses swinging around on stage and like Wilmot's poetry is so explicit but it's also very camp and homoerotic and Mm. you know there's this weird like dichotomy of performativeness and excess and this is what the rake was the rake was a performative hypermachismo excess and that hypermachismo as hypermachismo often does look at wrestling strayed constantly into queer territories because it was fundamentally about perversion perversion of morality perversion of of nobility these young men were like we can do whatever we want 
because we have just been reinstated and the king doesn't give a fuck in fact he's like woo let's party like I'm gonna let my wife the queen act on stage with a giant wooden phallus swinging around sure why not So the rakes essentially began to form, to an extent, clubs and gangs. So the younger, more middle class rakes who were not as refined. And I say that I'm not saying, oh, they were so refined. I mean, like, literally, they did not have the same status, manners or education. They would form gangs that had names like the Knickers, as in Nick, as in N-I-C-K, like they've stolen it, and the Ballers. Um, And very famously in the early 1700s, a Native American chieftain was brought to England and basically paraded, paraded around. Very weird point in history. And they were like all the Mohawk. And everyone thought this was so cool. So this group called themselves the Mohawks. So there's these groups of young men and they... So you have the more, you know, the higher class ones who are essentially starting like secret society type clubs and they have their purpose is to drink, to whore and to have fun. Do you know what this sounds like? It sounds like the um, Bullingdon Club. Yes. Now, (laughs) yes. So essentially what you've you've hit the nail on the head. What I was going to say is it begins this long tradition. Mm. Now, gentlemen's clubs already existed. But the restoration really made the club a thing. And in the 18th and 19th century, gentlemen's clubs were huge. And what club you belonged to was really important. And as more universities start to pop up across the country, more clubs start to pop up and, you know, different political ideologies, particularly after like the Glorious Revolution, which comes a few years after this, because shocker, this was not sustained. (laughs) The restoration did not last that long because essentially they start to ruin themselves because it was so performative and so excessive that everybody started. So Wilmot's face started to fall off because of, um, I think, syphilis. You know, everyone's catching venereal diseases. And the thing is, they were married to women, usually noble women, who usually their fathers had married them to, to continue the bloodlines. They were giving their wives these venereal diseases, so then their wives were dying young, then there's no one to look after the children if there's any children at all. So the restoration is like, yeah, YOLO, oh my God, we're all dying. Like <laughs> people getting into duels, people are drinking themselves to death, people are getting venereal diseases. It's so performative, so excessive that it was always going to be insustainable. In 1688, the Glorious Revolution happens because everyone in Britain was like, ha, this monarchy is not going so well. You know, it's licentious, it's immoral, the country is going bankrupt, all of our young men are like literal criminals, what shall we do? And they're like, ah, well, the younger brother, uh, the younger sisters of the king so the Stuart princesses have married this very proper Protestant man because also there's the whole Catholic Protestant thing, um, which kind of really wasn't coming into play because... I love how you just reduced it to that whole Catholic and Protestant thing. Like, this, this has been cent- centuries of, like, centuries, religious, religious conflict, <laughs> violence, like, intense theological like... debates, and you're like, yeah, that, <laughs> that, that, whole thing. that, that Protestant Catholic thing. But let's love be it. honest. At the end of the restoration, it was kind of, they used it as an excuse to dethrone him. It wasn't because they were like, oh no, he's marrying this, like he wants to marry this Catholic princess and we're supposed to be Protestant. But it was also because they were like, you've ruined the country. (laughs) Like you you guys can't be king anymore. So they go and they're like, hey, like princess Mary, like your husband is this 
super dull, boring Protestant man. And last time we had a dull, boring Protestant man, he was like pretty good. So do you guys want to be king and queen? And William and Mary were like, yeah, sure, we'll be king and queen. So 1688, William and Mary come over, they become king and queen, and the British constitution is born. And the British constitution establishes the constitutional monarchy, which is what we still have, obviously much less powerful, but the idea being we will have a parliament and that parliament will actually have power. These won't just be members of parliament who are like, hey, king, we think we should do this thing. And the king's like, fuck all of y'all, I'm the king. God said I could do this. They're like, hey, you have to sign off on the government, but to a certain extent, we're the representatives of the people, <laughs> which is hilarious because uh, you could only vote if you were noble, essentially, or a landowner. But, you know, more democracy than we had before. So the democracy is established, the constitution is established, and Britain's like, we're better than everybody because we have a constitutional monarchy. So we, like, progress, then we go super far back, then we kind of come a bit further back. The rake doesn't die out, though like a venereal disease themselves like once once you've got it it's hard to get rid of (laughs) and honestly people this is how people were talking about it like obviously Mm. they didn't understand venereal diseases but this is how it was seen like the rape and his more effeminate counterpart the fop was seen as being this disease that was like corrupting the young men of Britain and every rake who came into contact with five young men was gonna pollute those five young men but rakes also were like everyone was like oh my god they're so cool (laughs) they're so handsome and rich and charming and funny and they wrote poems and obviously there's a lot this is where the overlap with the libertine comes in so in the early 1700s you have this strange state of excesses starting to die down And this is when you get things like Rape of the Lock, which is a very kind of, if you look at Rape of the Lock, what you see is a text that is emblematic of the beginning of the British Enlightenment. You have this new monarchy that is constitutional. Queen Anne in particular starts passing a lot of laws to try and limit noble power and abuses. And you get this generation of young people, particularly young men, who are like, what's the point in any of this? Like, why does any of this matter? Because you cracked down then we came back then you cracked down again but we're still here like why does any of this matter and that carpe diem kind of gives way to this almost nihilism you're telling us that we have to be good now because then we'll be privileged in the afterlife how do you know that you have as the enlightenment starts to come in and you have this prestige of science and learning it invites these questions of well how do you know this and if all of these things exist on earth and god made earth why can't we enjoy them and if good men still die and are killed and if we overthrew a king and we didn't all get shot down by you know divine lightning how do we know that any of it like why should we listen to you great question yeah (laughs) love 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 these questions love these questions specifically relating to nobility to, to mm-hmm. the monarchy, to, you know, the idea that you have this kind of institution, whether it be the kind of the state, the monarch or religious body that's telling you to do certain things and to live your live exactly. your life a certain way because of this threat or I guess it's the carrot or the stick of the afterlife, isn't it? And it's yes. like, but wh- wh- why should we, the people, and I as an individual, wh- where is the truth? behind your claims why should I listen to you 
Exactly. And this is where the Gothic starts to come in. Now, Mm -hmm. yes, yes. When I say the Gothic, what I'm talking about in this specific instance is the Gothic as a theory. And yes, the Gothic as a theory did not exist at this point in time. We are talking about the 1710s and 20s. Tranto doesn't come out until 1764. At this point in time, Gothic means bad, old, supernatural, medieval, you know, yada, yada, yada. So yes, okay, I am using this, I will confess, I'm using this retroactively. But if the Marxists and the, you know, gender scholars can do it, then we as Gothicists can also do it. Because I approve when they do it, so I would like to think they'll approve when I do it. So I'm talking very much Gothic as, like, a theory. Mm -hmm. So the Gothic as a model that allows you to deconstruct ideas of morality through engagement with the supernatural, with religion, with life and death. And this is where the first Hellfire Club comes from. So in 1718, Philip, the Duke of Wharton, essentially establishes the first Hellfire Club. Now, this is actually not the most famous Hellfire Club, and it's not really the Hellfire Club that we have that like cultural association with, but he creates it in 1718. And it is essentially a gentleman's club. It's a gentleman's club, and it mostly meets in London. And it's very much inspired by this post-restoration enlightenment resistance, but in some ways enlightenment fueled idea of God is dead, long live atheism. Now, members of the Hellfire Club, of both Hellfire Clubs, would often say that they weren't atheists. And Walton and his kind of members actually were like, we're not atheists, but you, you know, you, we're questioning death. You present death as this like mysterious unknown. But why? Like, why should we believe that? And why should we deny ourselves pleasures on earth? So even though they were denying it was atheism, for the political religious culture of the 1710s and 20s, it really was atheism. I also really love the way that this kind of, and I get, I'm, I'm sure you're going to go into this a little bit more, but the, the way that <laughs> the kind of dark supernatural imagery of hell and, and of hellfire mm-hmm. is kind of, Uh, used as a symbol or some kind of you know thing that people can latch on to as as a way to to frame their rebellion against established thought or to use as a starting point for their questioning because we see this in the 20th century with with satanism the church of satan and the satanic temple they both use satan in this in this way exactly specifically for the satanic temple who are i guess out and out atheist they they say that everything is specifically symbolic in the way that they use imagery Mm -hmm. of satan and and narratives of satan but it doesn't necessarily have to be Um, no but i so i essentially wrote in my notes this is proto-satanism but for Mm -hmm. the lols So the first Hellfire Club does in 1718 is it uses black magic, satanic imagery. They have this idea of the devils and devils and communion with the devil. And they do participate in, Mm. you know, these mock rituals, but it was all very much mock. And this is where the thing comes from that a lot of people think that the Hellfire Club was a satanic black magic worshipping organisation. Most of the evidence that we have suggests that actually this was all just a group of young men using the idea of Satan because 
post Puritan like yes okay we are 50 years post and when you look at it on a timeline you're like well the restoration happened in like 1660s 1670s you know we get the revolution in 1688 these guys weren't even alive but Puritan like religious trends don't go away that quickly but these are people whose parents and grandparents would have been either resisting a Puritan regime or part of a Puritan regime so we are we are currently filming this in in the year 2022 <laughs> yes well done, 2022, 2022. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, it's been a long year <laughs> but like when you think of things like the satanic panic that happened in in the 80s uh-huh. um and and had some kind of some kind of things into the 70s that's only like 40 years ago yeah and we're seeing like um I guess a renaissance but I, I mean I guess it never really went away of satanic panic in in, in culture and I, I'm specifically yes. thinking about about Grady Hendrix um who yes. wrote and also a fabulous book called satanic panic which has been turned into a film yes and all of these kinds of things and 40 also years the... is both a long time and, not a long <laughs> and we time. still have so for example um look at um, there's a documentary about this that just released on Netflix, the Lori Vallow case. Lori Vallow believed that people were being turned into zombies and that Satan was controlling them. You look at things like um, recently, I, can't, I don't know how recently, there's a great podcast called Sounds Like a Cult, listen to their Essential Oils episode, but because they do a really good deep dive, but things like the Essential Oils movement, which in the US is very, very closely tied to evangelism mm-hmm. as many MLMs are, a bunch of influences left because they were like oh the the head of the company is a satanic worshiper it hasn't gone away and that's very much what's happening in 1718 puritanism has not fully gone away all of this other <laughs> excessive stuff has happened so these guys essentially in the hellfire club they use this image because it's the exact opposite the thing that is diametrically opposed to christian religious worship is satan so they start using that this is also my point in that when i talk about cultural christianity i include these kinds of movements Mm -hmm. of of satanism or or i guess atheistic traditions that latch onto this because satan is very much specifically the way that we conceptualize him yeah as as a figure part of that kind of cultural christianity yeah and whether you subscribe theologically to christian like to christian beliefs mm-hmm. and traditions or not if you are working in that kind of on the one hand you have you know christianity and the christian god and and on the other hand you have satan and 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 hell and damnation and all that kind yep. of stuff that's still operating within within a christian uh-huh. framework of, and, and a christian a, narrative yeah this is a point in time where if you're British, you're culturally Christian. Mm-hmm. You could not be British. And this is something where our research overlaps because you work on like Jewish identity and I work on national identity. It's not that long ago that the King of England owned anybody who was Jewish in the country at this point. And that, even though that ownership, quote unquote, ended, it didn't really end. If you were British, if you were a British noble, And this is, again, there were black nobles, there were at this point some, you know, we're getting into the period of Indian colonization, uh, (laughs) colonization, I should be able to say this, colonialization, (laughs) thank you, oh my god, how can I not say that word when I work on Britain as a colonial entity, but like, yeah, what I'm saying is, I'm not saying, I'm not saying at all that Britain wasn't 
a racially mixed entity, even in the 1700s, it was. But if you were a British nobleman and you wanted to declare yourself as British, you had to be Christian. There was no question. And, you know, I know I, I like minimized it, but this is where the, the whole like Protestant Catholic tension comes from, because there was this idea like, no, if you're Catholic, you can't be British because we're a Protestant nation. There's, like our yeah. church is Protestant, so you have to be Protestant because we're British and it's the Church of England. In, in order to have certain rights and up, up to and including the right to stand as an MP mm-hmm. and to, to represent people which obviously again you know is limited to wealthy landowners but in order to have that specific right but also other rights in relation to owning property and and other things like that you had to participate in in the eucharist um, and specifically the protestant eucharist which meant that And it's not until the 19th century that that this was reversed to get rid of that clause because obviously if you're catholic you cannot participate in that protestant eucharist because it goes against your beliefs and and that was a way that that clause in particular is is a kind of focal point for all of these rules that established british britishness and and the the british identity in that kind of protestant way and it also excluded other kind of like categories and, and identities you can't shit on the French for being papal and immoral if you're accepting that papists can also be British, Yeah. Uh, to boil it down. And that's part of what leads to this growing culture of what we will maybe term something like cultural atheism. So, so people like Dashwood, they're starting this club. Now, Queen Anne tried to pass lots of different laws in the 1700s, uh, 1700s, 1710s to basically stop rakish behaviour. Now, rakes were cool. They made some good art. Like they were, you know, sound like sometime guys. They also would do things like kick down doors and beat women. They were terrorizing London and they were also bankrupting the country. So I'm not, you know, this is hypermachismo, toxic masculinity at its finest. Therefore, it's absolute worst. <laughs> um, because they were unchecked. They were like, we're above the law. You can't do anything to us. Screw you guys. And I- <laughs> I'm not going to say that a woman being on the throne had anything to do with this, but a woman being on the throne probably had something to do with this. Anyway, 1721, the newly established King George, taking on some of the stuff that Queen Anne had been doing in 1721, passes the bill to prevent blasphemy and profaneness. And this bill was almost directly targeted at Dashwood and the Hellfire Club. And Dashwood stood up in Parliament with his family Bible and was like, I... I'm not a blasphemer. This law is ridiculous. We are not worshipping Satan. We aren't doing any of this stuff. And even though, like, you know, they were kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. That puts an end to the first Hellfire Club because it's it becomes this big political issue. Like, you are blasphemers and profaners. I love, I love that for him, though. I love that, you know, this person just gets up in Parliament and is like, no, no, I'm not a blasphemer. <laughs> like, what a weird, what a weird political system right? we have that that can also, even Also, that he was happened. like, look, just because last week I had an orgy in my gentleman's club and I dressed up and was like, I'm Satan while I had my orgy does not mean I'm a blasphemer. Now, I agree with him. I don't think he did mean it was a blasphemer. But it goes to show this very weird tension and that this is a period of developing ideas of morality and legality. Where is the line drawn? What should be in? And, you know, in a way, 
there are some great things about how Britain developed as a nation and how we developed a legal system, you know, compared to some nations, we have a really good legal system. You know, there's very positive things about it. It's always evolving and changing. On the other hand, it's not so great. Um, but yeah, essentially, like, even though they are into this idea of demystifying death and, and, you know, what about the afterlife? They're not saying there is no God necessarily even though this movement is very kind of like God is dead in the sort of like nihilistic sense, they weren't saying we worship Satan and we are trying to summon a devil. They were using it in this excessive, inherently sexualized way. And I think personally, when you look at this issue was not that the king was like, oh no, <laughs> the noblemen are summoning demons. Like, oh God, Beelzebub. I think it's because when you have, particularly at this point, you know, 1707 is the act of union. This is a brand new nation and they are so trying, like desperately trying to self-mythologize. The myth of the Anglo-Saxon comes out of this time. Britain is desperately trying under its new monarchy to Mm -hmm. create itself as this enlightened nation. And if you've got noblemen literally having orgies, tearing up the town, employing satanic imagery with absolutely no consequences you can't be doing that it's a challenge to the authority and if you're trying to you know shepherd in this new successful middle class and you've got the nobility doing all this reprobate shit it's a bit like ooh. it sounds like there's two things that are happening the the kind of og hellfire club just wanted (laughs) to be cool and do cool things and yeah. have fun and play with some boundaries, but they weren't actually interested in kind of, like you say, summoning Beelzebub. But on the other hand, what you have is a really good example of the way that religion is used mm-hmm. to police boundaries and yes. and to kind of codify different expectations yeah. of society and, and ways yes. of, of belonging in in a society yeah and you know the club mocked religion but also this is a gentleman's club and it's an exclusive gentleman's club like as much as they are challenging you know some of their challenges to establishment and to like religious authority I can't really get behind I feel like we would have vibed on the other hand these are very rich very privileged young men or, you know, mm. men in their prime. Not all of them were that young, but most of them are younger. They're not really enacting, like, great social change. Like, this is not the satanic temple. And there's not necessarily any proof that they, like, were criminal or mistreated women. But, like, all of the kind of negative press they get is very satanic panicky and black magic-y. That's not really what they were doing. But on the other hand, this revolutionary ideology they had was very restricted to their particular social class and privilege. You know, they were very wasteful. They're very interested in their own enjoyment and pleasure. And whilst I don't fundamentally have an issue with that, like you're you're rich as hell. Like maybe, <laughs> maybe do some social change. And maybe, um, maybe check your privilege. Yeah, maybe check the privilege. <laughs> so that's the first Hellfire Club, and that's Dashwood's Hellfire Club. And this is very much a London's gentleman club. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where those kind of secret society type clubs from, come from. And I will say this now, the Hellfire Club is a big factor in fueling shit like the Illuminati conspiracy theories. 
men of letters, men of education have been doing this since there has been educational institutions. Like this goes back thousands of years. But in terms of English, English consciousness, because Dashwood's Hellfire Club made the papers and it went outside of, you know, everyone mm. in upper class London society knew it was happening. But because it went outside of that and all of a sudden it was in the papers and if you could read you knew about it we've got a growing middle class here it takes on this first kind of like oh secret society like this is the point where all of a sudden it's not only the highest echelons of society that can read and once people can read people can write and that's when things start to develop so also as someone who finds Illuminati conspiracies hilarious I must I personally think the Hellfire Club has a huge influence in that it is essentially a secret society that becomes public and is like mayhaps doing black magic. So that's the first Hellfire Club. Um, It's essentially put down in 17, yeah, put down in 1721 by the king. So we're going to jump forwards about 20 years to 1746. And this is Francis Dashwood's Hellfire Club, which, um, so he, (laughs) he was friends with uh, another famous member, the Earl of Sandwich. Indeed, the very man who was so lazy that he invented the sandwich because he did not want to stop gambling and made his servants bring in something that he could eat while he continued to play cards. I love a good sandwich. <laughs> I'm on board with this so far. All right. So yeah, the, the second Hellfire Club mostly originates with Dashwood, but also with his good pal, the originator of the sandwich, the Earl of Sandwich, who, as you might imagine, of being a man who spurred his staff to invent sandwiches because he didn't want to leave the gambling table <laughs> had similar you know similar interests to the hellfire club of the 1710s and hey you know what i'm give the man his dues because sandwiches are great inventions and i love know, a sandwich yeah obviously he didn't invent sandwich himself it just has his name but you know yeah. fabulous i i love i love that and forever grateful yeah i mean stuff. I mean, from the simple cheese on white bread to mm. that sandwich that Craig made for us a few weeks ago, that was one of the best sandwiches. I think Mary's <laughs> boyfriend made a sandwich for us and it was such a good sandwich. I think about that sandwich quite often. <laughs> I will I will pass that along. And Craig, sure if you're listening, next time I come, I want that sandwich. <laughs> so yeah, sandwiches. Sandwiches in the Hellfire Club. Another thing that you might not know were connected. So this alleged Hellfire Club starts in the 1730s. So a little bit after. Also in London, but it's not going super well in London. So in 1746, they're like, let's get out of London. And Dashwood is like, what if we have it at my house? Because of course, he has a huge fucking house because what else and this house mary was built in the gothic revival style oh love it love it yeah what so ha- what house is it and where so it is questions. medinum medinum abbey Ooh. and the second hellfire club was called they like their name not just the hellfire club was the medinum friars <gasps> i love that yes so incredibly gothic so they they were called, let me get this right, their name for themselves outside of the Hellfire Club was the Order of the Friars of St. Francis of Wickham. Or Wycombe. I don't know. You're, you're from the South, so you might 
know which way around that's pronounced but this essentially was this massive joke because he's friends with Stashwood they're meeting at Medanum which is in West Wycombe or Wickham I think it's Wycombe um so they called themselves the Order of the Friars of St Francis of Wycombe it's just it's just so extra and isn't it the most? And so <laughs> unnecessary but also so fabulous and the most yeah. this is the Hellfire Club that becomes the Hellfire Club. Well, yeah, you don't, you, no one's going to care about like a boring, like secret London <laughs> club when you've got like this other one that takes place in a gothic abbey. Like, I know yes. which one I would rather join. Yeah, exactly. And like, this place has got mad Strawberry Hill vibes. Oh, I forgot to mention one of the people involved in putting down the first Hellfire Club. Guess who it was? Not, not your boy Walpole. My boy Walpole's dad, Robert Walpole. <laughs> first prime minister <laughs> aka massive <laughs> massive killjoy robert walpole first prime minister before he became a nerd kill. yeah huge before he became before he became a nerd he was <laughs> oh no no he put it down he was responsible for like he was one of the people that petitioned the king oh to get the first oh down. i see what you mean i thought you meant like he's he a fucking not <laughs> no oh. i wish now walpole had Obviously, Walpole was quite young at this point, but um, Horace Walpole, like, as a young man, when these guys were older, did he kind of, like, idolise them a little bit and was pretty mm. interested in them. And he did write about the Hellfire Club. But Robert Walpole was like, no, no Hellfire Club for you. Because <laughs> he was a killjoy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the Medellin Friars established this. And this is also really key because it's out of London. So this is using their country homes, not their houses in town, like where they live as members of parliament. Because these guys are all, all members of parliament. Like these are, because they're all titled and landed dudes. So Medanum Abbey, the Medanum Friars. So you can kind of see how like, our, even like our current conscious cultural associations of the Hellfire Club, there are these guys going at the weekend to this house in town dressing up in robes and calling themselves friars and they were doing like fake rituals in this gothic revival house and he had you know the gothic revival garden there was all of these classical statues so they were really into like greco-roman and i'm saying greco-roman because we know greco-roman is not a thing in the same way that judeo-christian isn't a thing but in the 18th century like classicism and classical illusions were a thing. And this is a period of neoclassicism. They didn't give a shit if it was Greek or Roman. They were like, ooh, ancient. So you have this intermingling of, of Greek and Roman, mostly Greek, because there was much more of an idea of like the Dionysian in, in Grecian mythology. So they have all of these statues to like Greek gods and goddesses. And there's basically this intermingling of pagan greco-roman ritual and again satanism they referred to each other as devils and they wore masks and robes and they were like the brothers of the order of saint francis this is very much like there's loads of uh novels and films that are about Uh this kind of this rich elite who you know in the in the daytime or or during their work week they're they're in London or or mm-hmm. other cities you know New York or, or all these kinds of things and they are people who are in in those positions of power yep. both political but also you know business uh, exactly. corporation CEOs all of this kind of stuff but at the weekend 
they go to their fancy second houses in mm-hmm. rural spaces where they're big, big places and they all get together and they do weird stuff like putting on yeah. costumes and masks and having orgies and doing yep. fake rituals or maybe not fake yep. rituals because maybe maybe that's and again, where they get their money so from this, and their power. This, this is where, again, like the way that the Hellfire Club has been remembered versus the way the Hellfire Club was. There's very little proof to say that any of them thought they were actually summoning mm. demons or doing black magic. However, they had a motto and their motto was do what thou will which is taken from, oh my French is so bad, Rabelais, Rabelas. Um, I'm not going to announce, I'm not going to attempt to say the name of the text, but it's taken from this French <laughs> writer. And guess which black magic devotee adopted this as his slogan in the 20th century? Oh, 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 I don't know. Alistair Crowley. Interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So this is what I mean. Like the Hellfire, the second Hellfire Club in mm. particular, the Madden Friars, has this huge impact on Satanism, on black magic, right through into like the 21st century. It's not totally clear who was a member of the Hellfire Club. There's lots of rumored members. We know a couple of people were definitely members, such as the Earl of Sandwich, a poet called Thomas Potter, obviously Dashwood himself. It's rumored that John Wilkes was a member so for those of you watching or listening who don't know who John Wilkes is John Wilkes was a very famous I'm going to call him a dissenter because he was a politician and he was very anti-establishment he repeatedly got into trouble for you know speaking out against parliament for disagreeing with parliament there's some fantastic punch comics satiring him Gilray kind of like mocks him constantly in comics so John Wilkes was supposedly a member of the Hellfire Club which is interesting because he was on a very different political spectrum to someone like the Earl of Sandwich so the, there is this element that this is a place where it doesn't matter what your politics are which is fun doesn't stay fun as I'll explain in a minute but he was a supposed member. William Hogarth, the famous painter, the most famous painter of the 18th century, I would argue, is also supposed to have been a member because he paints this fantastic portrait of Dashwood. And there's some kind of like fun allusions to the Hellfire Club in this portrait. And they were very good friends. So people like, oh, maybe but Hogarth you can, was a member. You can see, though, like how there's, there's an element of fun and playfulness in, in the kind mm-hmm. of secrecy because stuff like that. It's kind of like in on, on a much kind of smaller in-group situation. But it's yeah. when you want when you watch a film like a like a recent Star Wars film or a recent Marvel film, and I'm thinking specifically of Marvel um because of all, all the comics as well. But when you as a yes. fan see something and you spot something and you're like, that's an Easter egg that I've recognized <laughs> it's like from that, a comic. Um... Or from another yes. kind of story or from another film. Yes. Like and that meme of Leonardo DiCaprio pointing. There's like a meme. It's like an image of Leonardo DiCaprio pointing from, I think, um, the Tarantino movie that's about the Manson murder. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. And he's like, it's that moment of like, <gasps> yeah, I know yeah. what that is. <laughs> and I guess on a much smaller scale, all of these people, you know, sure, maybe there's nothing satanic or a- actual kind of rituals behind it. But that idea that there are all of these playful references that they're yes, putting into their paintings and their stories mm-hmm. or maybe their sandwiches and all this kind of stuff that <laughs> the only the only yes. they can look and the be like, I, jam. <laughs> yes, I recognize 
I recognize that lettuce leaf or yes. I recognize exactly this in, in this painting or exactly this and this has been a thing for so you know Templars were doing this like mm-hmm. there's a reason why everyone thinks the Templars were the beginning of the Illuminati and it's like the same with the Freemasons and actually some members of the Hellfire Club went on to become Freemasons because yeah. you know when you're in a kind of semi-culty organization you go on to another one but one very famous potential member is a very prominent American who at the time was an ambassador in the years that led up to the American Revolution. Do you know who it might have been? I'm not the founding gonna, father. I'm not well, I was gonna say it's gonna be one of the founding fathers, isn't it? Because as yep. as anyone who knows American history knows that the, the founding fathers were not, you know, <laughs> prim and proper Christian people. <laughs> Um, if anything, the the exact opposite. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm not yeah. gonna guess. I don't know. Jefferson, no. Ben Franklin. Oh, okay. So Ben yeah. Franklin historically has been been discussed many times. You know, was Ben Franklin a spy? Which the answer is probably yes, because you know the Sons of Liberty and like the Patriot Movement wasn't really a thing yet. But we are talking the 1740s and 1750s. American Revolution happens in the 1770s, 1775. So, you know, it is the beginnings. And Dashwood, Francis Dashwood, had political dealings with Ben Franklin and invited him to his country estate. So it is possible. And I don't know, Ben Franklin is not part of my speciality because my research starts like after the Seven Years' War. Ben Franklin, bit of a party boy, like the guy liked a good time. And (laughs) whilst I don't want to say Ben Franklin was ever a member of the Hellfire Club however Ben Franklin was very good friends with members of the Hellfire Club was invited to the place where the Hellfire Club took place and Ben Franklin was a freaky dude (laughs) like I feel like if he was there and they were like hey sometimes on the weekend we pretend to um do black magic and we wear robes and um we have like orgies do you want to take part he would have been like so what I'm thinking what this is making me think of (laughs) and and this might exist and if it does exist and then can someone please let me know but if we can have something like Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter why can we not also have like some historical fan fiction about you know (laughs) Franklin Ben Franklin and the Hellfire (laughs) Hellfire Club yeah like I don't know just sound just sound like what if like so I like to watch and listen to Hamilton and pretend it's a fantasy because it's such an unrealistic representation of that particular history and that particular man. But what if <laughs> the next big musical is Ben Franklin and like the health? Can you imagine the stage? Spooky musical. Yeah. Love it. Like the bit, oh my God, like the bit in the Book of Mormon where they do the spooky Mormon hell and like there's all the devils and stuff. Limbo Mom Miranda hit me up. <laughs> like we have just come up with a great the ghoul guides have got an idea for a Ben Franklin musical. I think that that sounds great. And I think that Or like a Matthew Bourne ballet. Yeah, because there's something about there's something about like gothic on stage because the gothic is so performative and so playful and so extra and when you have this kind of elite secret society that maybe are summoning the devil or maybe are just having fun in some costumes (laughs) you know it's just very fun and visually pleasing and you've got that little tension with are Mm -hmm. they summoning the devil are they just eating a load of sandwiches in robes who knows maybe it's both 
I think the devil probably would like a sandwich. Um, so yeah, so this second health air club is a bit more performative. It's a bit more kind of leaning into the excessiveness of like, I'm going to call it the role play element because I don't think the evidence suggests that this was genuine, even though later people like Crowley would think it was, they became known for blasphemy, devilum and, you know, worship and, and black magic. And but they're having these like, you know, bacchanalian parties. They're having these very classically inspired parties. So it is, it's more kind of, I see this as an exploration. Again, it's quite, it's a little bit more, it's not just the highest echelons because at this point we do have a more prevalent middle class. You've got people like Wilkes there potentially. But for the most part, it's anti-establishment orgies. That's what the Hellfire Club is, which, you know, you do you babes yeah I'm okay with that love that for you love, love that, that for you. you and this is very much rejecting things like husbandry mm-hmm. husbandry is um a notion and an art that comes out post-enlightenment in line with sensibility that is like a good man a real man the best masculinities are men who take care of their estates look after their women you know care for their sisters and make sure they make good matches that look after their tenants, that understand farming and their lands are productive because the nobles just shit themselves in the restoration, sometimes literally because they were drinking a lot. And now we have all of these men who like either died young without heirs or riddled with venereal diseases, or we have the inheritors to these estates whose fathers absolutely ruined them and they're bankrupt, which meant that they, and this is where all of the class mingling comes from, because that's why everybody was marrying merchants' daughters. Because merchants wanted status and nobles wanted money. And it was this beautiful little class class mixing that was not really beautiful. But like this is where that intermingling comes from. And the Hellfire Club is very much like all of the, the attempts being made to like justify that morally and all of this kind of like enlightenment thinking and you know you've got to be rational and you've got to be in control of everything and it's you've got to be gentlemanly and strong and brave the hellfire club is like nah we are gonna drink we are gonna dance we are gonna party we are gonna be playful and this is again where the gothic comes in because the gothic is really rejected at this point in time we're talking 1740s 1750s the gothic represents everything that enlightened britain does not want doesn't want anything to do with it because it wants to see itself as the new inheritors of the classical age and what the hellfire club is doing is kind of this proto-gothic where it's like yeah but devilry and supernatural and the pagan sides all of these things that you're pretending didn't exist about the classical era this is fun and in this fun I get to experiment with my identity and I think that separation between who we are in the week in London as members of parliament and the court and who we are in the weekend it's very eyes wide shut like this is a huge separation between their different identities and it's this beginning of the gothic being a place in which you can explore your identity Mm -hmm. and the otherness and all of that so there are some positives to this hellfire club and women were involved willingly in this hellfire club now there's lots of reports and again this is where it gets difficult because there's all of these like they were kidnapping young women and luring them in or they're like you know hiring sex workers which was happening quite a lot but also there's quite a lot to suggest that noble women either the wives of these members or other kind of like 
young women of the same social class maybe every now and then not all the time but sometimes were engaging in these parties and were part of these parties so there is this semi and it's a shame that this bit's not super clear because I'd love to think it was an amazing like (laughs) celebration of the female but there is this element where you're like well if women were taking part in this willingly then you know it's not super exclusionary unlike some secret societies but that's a really interesting thing is that women were not excluded completely from this hellfire club it's just a shame that essentially like it's difficult to tell because (laughs) what's real what's rumor what's exaggeration hard to tell but the Medinam Abbey friars started you know this is quite all of these people are going out there at the weekend even though it's not like in the papers people did start to get word and it started to attract attention. So they moved to get this, a literal series of caves. <laughs> they moved, <laughs> yeah, they moved their meetings from Medinam Abbey. And actually it wasn't at Medinam Abbey for that long um, before they moved the order to literal caves at West Wycombe. What I'm, what I'm now imagining is all of their staff having to like... <laughs> bury them in you know coaches and and you know horse and carts or whatever carrying all of their carrying all of their you know costumes and stuff and (laughs) all of the props that they need because obviously you can't you can't get into a carriage dressed in all your kind of like ceremonial robes so you'd have that packed away And then the you'd, get, carrying you'd get the, the foot, like, yeah, the footman's carrying it. Yeah, you'd have you pack it all up, <laughs> you'd load it into the carriage, you'd go to the woods or the caves, you'd get changed <laughs> in the woods or somewhere. I don't know, maybe they'd erect a special tent, or maybe you would just like hide behind a tree, and then you'd come out <laughs> and then you'd go into the caves, and then maybe all of the servants would just kind oh, of like huddle together, yeah. being like, aren't just our masters really weird? <laughs> Well, you can hear all the flesh slapping. Yeah, yeah. Well, these caves are now a tourist attraction. You can go and visit them, and I really want to go. Um, so we might have to. Go we should go. Trip. We should go. Because, well, I was just thinking. So, I was thinking when you said that, like, we don't know if there are any women that were involved. I was like, well, maybe we should set up our own Hellfire Club. Um, which, just for anyone listening, we are absolutely not going to do. Um, <laughs> that's what this but... is this is called the google guide association <laughs> but yeah maybe we should go We're nerds so <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should go get ourselves some special robes some cool. magical goblets or something i don't know cool. neither of us drink <laughs> neither of us drink so maybe like some maybe some like ribena or, or grape juice or something we'll just go and have a picnic in these games maybe make some sandwiches i'll be sipping my ice matcha latte <laughs> Yeah, we're massive nerds. So if this is essentially <laughs> our version of a Hellfire Club, we're like, oh, let's make a podcast where we talk about the gothic. <laughs> but I'm what I'm saying is that obviously anyone listening, we're not going to do that. But no. I'm down if you're down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hypothetically. <laughs> so these capes, they literally are in caves. And again, how many narratives in the gothic or, you know, in that kind of like satanic panic do you have of people in the woods having orgies and rituals in caves that permeates and obviously it goes back much older you have stories of druids and you know cults um you know a lot of like roman and greek deities had cults that you know were sometimes quite well 
<laughs> when is a cult not dangerous when it's not a cult um, but yeah so this is like a huge thing and and it's happening it's really happening in England the enlightened constitutional land of freedom so unfortunately it doesn't last that long because bitches be back by in it's great that you had this place where like men from all across the political spectrum could come they didn't always like each other and Wilkes and Sandwich had a big political falling out um John Wilkes was actually imprisoned in the Tower of London for his radical beliefs um John Wilkes is another one where sometimes I'm like you go John Wilkes like (laughs) yes you badass and other times I'm like, oh, why do you have to be like this? <laughs> like, we were all on your <laughs> yeah. side. Which a lot of historical progressive figures are like that. You're like, oh, you guys fought for women's suffrage. Oh, you would eugenicists. Oh, no. Why? And Wilkes is one of those people. Partially because of his uh, association with things like this. So when Wilkes was imprisoned in the Tower of London, when he was arrested, they obviously went through his stuff. The Earl of Sandwich was involved in Wilkes being arrested and... You know, they were like, oh, he's treacherous, all of this stuff. And they find this poem, this manuscript poem that he'd written, or I think they said he'd written, but I think he did write it. That was a satire of Pope's essay on man. And it was very debauched. It was called An Essay on Women. And you can look it up if you'd like, but you can probably guess what the contents were. And of course, people were horrified, horrified. And so through things like this and stuff that Thomas Potter published um, and a couple of other things, including like pornographic books. Um, so to have dirty, you know, dirty books, pornographic books, you could be arrested because some of them were rather risque. And really only the richest of the rich could successfully hide them. But they were involved in things like the writing and publishing. So slowly egos get involved as always happens with groups of men and it starts to fall apart I was gonna say men are men are actually like really really emotional and sometimes yeah. like they just let them emotions exactly. get in the way of of cool things and, like a health you know life. when you've got a group of men in one space like they all get very petty and very bitchy and they get hyper emotional and they just ruin themselves and it's really sad to see but history has shown us time and time again that that is what happens anyway <laughs> um, so neither hellfire club lasts that long because the nature of such excess and performativity like all things aside, the thing about performativity and excess is it is insustainable. You cannot continue for long periods of time because you just can't. Like, your liver's going to die, for one thing. Like, you have people who were dying in their 30s of venereal diseases, of, you know, cirrhosis. Rakes were one of the reasons that dueling was outlawed because all these young men kept dying of gunshot wounds and stabs because the 18th century medicine is very limited so you know this is seen as very being very harmful so it comes to an end but this is like the 1740s 1750s early maybe 1760s the gothic kicks off in earnest in the 1760s the hellfire club becomes this like huge piece of cultural mythos And the truth and the rumour becomes intermingled. And over the decades, it builds up and it builds up. And it becomes the fuel for certain Gothic texts, for certain Gothic ideas. And of course, yeah, you have this group of rich men 
who are ostensibly abusing their power to have a secret society in the caves where they commit sexual devious acts. And, you know, there's also that thing of like, oh, well, he's helping him because they're in a club together. And obviously this still happens, but the Hellfire Club becomes this like crazy, satanic, immoral myth that we still have today. And you can see that because multiple things are inspired by the Hellfire Club. So a couple, I'm not going to kind of go through all of them because we'd be here a long time, but just to kind of bring it up to the modern day, after those two big Hellfire Clubs, you have Hellfire Clubs in Ireland and Scotland. Ireland, they were mostly members of parliament. You also have Hellfire Clubs in Scotland. And Scotland at this point, you know, is going through a real sort of intense political, ideological and religious, I'm going to say discourse, because there's no real certain sort of like, this is one way or the other, but you are getting like that conflict. They're going through some shit. They're going through some shit in Scotland. And you see that in the 19th century Gothic with stuff like Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Because Scotland's like, you know, Jacobite Rebellion happens in 1745. You've got some very dour Presbyterians like James Fordyce, who is the bore of all bores. Um, If you know Pride and Prejudice, he's the dude that wrote uh, sermons to young women, Fordyce's sermons. I had to read his work again the other day and it was the most painful experience of my life so you have these very dour people you then have obviously like leftover catholic and you have a lot of questions about you know does hell exist is hell on earth when does sin happen so that idea of hell fire the fires of hell like scotland Mm -hmm. in some ways takes it very literally it also migrates over to america possibly through ben franklin um, but you also have like these secret societies that are inspired by it in the US and the, the newly born US in the like 1780s and 90s. So what's super interesting and super gothic about the Hellfire Club is that even though most people don't, and this is like what we said about gaslighting, most people don't know where the Hellfire Club comes from. They don't know what it was. It's not like something that we're taught. It's not something that's really ingrained in consciousness. It's not like, oh, you know, if you say Ben Franklin to someone, even you know, we're Brits, we don't learn about the US until university, and that's if we want to. We know who that is. We know that that's a founding father. Like, we have a cultural awareness. The Hellfire Club doesn't have that. But because of its name, but also because of what it was, it's become ingrained in us, even if we don't know where it came from, as something subversive and transgressive and dangerous. And a really great example of this is that one of the most famous villains in the X-Men universe is Emma Frost and she is part of the Hellfire Club and the Hellfire Club in the X-Men universe so you have the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants who you know they they wear their heart on their sleeves and that's Magneto's group and then you have Emma Frost now if you have only seen the X-Men movies you only know this because of X-Men First Class first of all I'm sorry and second of all, that movie did not do that justice. Emma Frost is a great character. And also the Hellfire Club is a really interesting idea. Um, so in the comics, the Hellfire Club has, they're all kind of named after chess pieces. So there's a black king and a black queen, a white king and a white queen, and, and Emma Frost is the white queen. Um, and she's a badass bitch. And the Hellfire Club is a kind of like ambiguous group that's very powerful, that's moving things behind the scenes, that 
is evil because it suits them. Like Magneto's mutants have a purpose. You know, they're like radical, extremist, borderline terrorists, but they have a purpose. The Hellfire Club is kind of like, oh, well, we have powers. And those powers make us superior and we can do things with them. So what's really interesting is that one of the biggest pop culture mediums has a Hellfire Club. And that Hellfire Club is kind of connected to the original Hellfire Club. And that's probably because the people at Marvel did their research because a lot of comic writers do. And, you know, Emma Frost, well, she has like a fake British accent that's kind of a weird... It, it happened because comics continuity is weird. And at one point she has a British accent and then at another point she's American. So they they do it as like a thing. But like it's like idealized as, you know, all like comes out of this, you know, like British Illuminati style secret societies. So you have a Hellfire Club there. And then, of course, Stranger Things, in which the Hellfire Club is being used completely separate from its origins, but also still completely in its gothic origins, because it's being used by a group of teenagers who are identifying themselves as other. They are using the term Hellfire Club because they want to be counterculture, because they are being stifled and they want to embrace these things and not because they're Satanists in the way that the world thinks that they are, but because their other and their other in a positive way so that's the Hellfire Club. I love it and and I love that you've tied it together in that way because it really brings together the ideas of with the you know the OG Hellfire Club and and then you know the the kind of Hellfire Club revival those first two initial ones where it's all just about like this homosocial mm-hmm. men getting together or, or even just, you know, men and women, depending on which, whichever way we're reading this, like people getting together and just having fun and playing around with things. Because that's very much, you yes. know, that's very much D&D, which is what the Stranger Things Hellfire Club is about. Exactly. And it's about and I, making friends, having fun. Yes. Yeah. And I love that because like D&D, you know, I said earlier, like they were kind of like LARPing, role-playing Satanism. And, you know, Satanism isn't something that, existed as a real concept in the 17 mm. and 1800s or even earlier in the 1600s with the rakes like it had obvious catholic illusions because mm-hmm. we're in this period of like you know post-catholic britain a very post-puritan that anxiety between the two so well let's adopt this idolatry and the robes because it's different it's other it's not british christianity And if you put on a robe and you worship Satan, seemingly, then you're doing something very different. I don't think any of them were genuinely Satanists. I don't think any of them believed in black magic. What I think they were doing is playing with this idea to explore. And yeah, like I love D&D because you can play with ideas and you can explore things about yourself at the table in a nice, safe, supportive way. I don't necessarily think the Hellfire Club was nice, safe or supportive capable of radical change didn't really do it but yeah like there's this whole lineage from like 1718 right through to like 2022 and it's just pretty fascinating as well that people lost their minds when like news Mm -hmm. came out about the hellfire club lost their minds and it's no surprise that it was used to discredit the politics of people like wilkes yeah who was saying you know you're being really harsh on the americans like one of the big things about wilkes is that in the 1760s he was hugely critical of the new taxes that the britons put on the americans and essentially (laughs) the crown and parliament's insistence on 
sticking to that is what caused the American Revolution. They were constantly trying to discredit Wilkes in the press, in the media. You know, I mean, this is this has always been the case. Like, yeah, now we have it everywhere because we have Instagram and TikTok and Twitter and 24-hour news. But even then, people were like, oh, Wilkes is corpulent and he's disgusting and he's degenerate and he's an idiot. You know, all of this negative press and he was constantly being cartooned. So the Health Fire Club was used as part of that criticism of Wilkes, particularly to talk to a middle class and upper working class literate society to be like, look at what these men are doing with your, these are members of parliament using your taxes. And obviously that wasn't true, but like it kind of was to an extent. And we see from people like Burke, like there was big criticism of the aristocracy for being lazy and being degenerate and being excessive. And I don't disagree with that because I am not a fan of class hierarchies. It was, you know, it was used negatively against this type of thing. And it is exactly the same as the satanic panic. There was false narratives. There was false publications of like things that had supposedly happened. And, you know, how many false narratives came out from the satanic panic? There were all these people that were like, I was abused in a satanic cult. And then <laughs> years later, they were like, oh, you, what? <laughs> your name is, the none of this exists. Your name isn't even your name. And, you know, they were going on TV shows and saying this shit. It's exactly the same as what happened with the Hellfire Club, just on a bigger scale. And, yeah, and even though if you said the name Francis Dashwood to somebody, they probably wouldn't have a clue who that is. Although the Dashwoods were a very famous and very prominent family in the 18th century. You say Hellfire Club to someone, they're probably going to think of things like Satanism and Black Magic. And that is... Exactly, like, on the one hand, the Hellfire Club, as we would think of it in the cultural consciousness of 2022, absolutely nothing to do with the Hellfire Club. On the other hand, it's exactly that, and it's exactly the same. And I think that's wonderful. (laughs) It's a nice legacy to have. People aren't going to remember your name. At least they're going to remember something cool, like the Hellfire Club. Yeah, also, like, (laughs) people like Philip Duke of Wharton and Francis Dashwood, I wouldn't say they were great guys I don't think I would have liked them had I met them they were you know (laughs) they were people who abused their privilege they were into excess like they were people with power who misused it and I think there was a lot of misogyny in these groups and and, like particularly the first half I club like it seems to have been born out of that period of freakishness but the things they were doing was questioning authority and questioning you know religious absolutism like if you're British Mm -hmm. you must be Christian which is you know something that I even experienced at school like 20 years ago and that's a really important legacy so I do think is really nice is that Um, because we've forgotten who people like that are all we've preserved is what to me is the good stuff like (laughs) the kind of challenging the embracing of the other I don't love that people like Alistair Crowley were inspired by them because he's I don't love his whole deal but you can see how groups like and again like Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan kind of problematic but they were doing something really important and really revolutionary. And you can see that in the social change that the Temple of um, the Satana Temple like enacts today. So it's a weird to me, the Hellfire Club is also like a really weird instance of, well, this thing was actually started out kind of toxic and has become something quite brilliant. Whereas usually it's like, this is a beautiful, brilliant thing and it becomes real toxic. I would say I think the Hellfire Club has had the opposite trajectory and that is beautiful. (laughs) 
I love that. I love that. I think that was really interesting and spooky. Thanks. And yeah, like like you say, all, all the good things have right? you know have been kept, like the spookiness, but also that rebellion and transgressiveness and 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 push to to question authority and the establishment. Yeah, love yeah, it. And I think that's great. So if you're wearing a Hellfire Club t-shirt this October for Halloween, here's your history lesson and know that. Whilst it may not have the best origins, it stands for something pretty freaking cool. I'm, I'm down with it. You know, I'm down with it. And also, I feel like if you weren't a Stranger Things fan or you didn't really watch it and you just want to wear a cool Hellfire Club t-shirt, you should do that because it's a really good t-shirt design and I like it a lot. Grab yourself a sandwich, go out and get some spooky treats. And yes. Oh, you. That would be such a good Halloween costume this year is if you wear the Hellfire Club t-shirt but then you wear like an 18th century wig and have a sandwich like (laughs) but no one but us will get that reference only we will get it yeah I would love that if you do that send us pictures yeah yeah um but yeah I love that and you know if you do have a cool Halloween costume this year let us know you can find us on Twitter at the Ghoul Guides and you can also follow us both individually individually literary law is my handle but just search for dr lauren nixon um and yours is at mass going i believe at mass going yep and you can also find us on instagram also at the cool guides and don't forget to do all the liking and the subscribing because it helps us a lot and we also have a kofi that we will post in this video that bought these amazing pop stand no pop shields not pop stands <laughs> these amazing pop shields so thank you to our wonderful kofi supporters we appreciate you hugely and anything that we do get on the kofi will go to you know buying books for research or improving our setup so thank you to those of you who support us uh, we're going to be doing it is spooky season so you know stay tuned we're going to have some fun episodes coming up And in the meantime, stay safe and stay spooky. Stay safe and stay spooky. Bye. Bye.